Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and today, the future of education. Recently, we did an episode here on Great Ideas where we talked about some of the lessons learned during the pandemic about remote learning and hybrid schools and school reopening. We talked about what worked, what didn't, and some of the problems we encountered along the way. It was a very interesting and worthwhile discussion. I hope you'll check it out. I learned a lot. But there's another side of this coin. What if in our all-out effort to get school going again by whatever means we could, especially for our elementary age kids, we got focused on the wrong question. Even before the pandemic, progress on basic reading, science, and math scores had flattened. The National Assessment of Education Progress, a project of the Federal Education Department, found in 2015 that only 40% of fourth graders, 33% of eighth graders, and 25% of 12th graders were at least proficient in math. The numbers for science are equally jarring. 38% of fourth graders, 34% of eighth graders, and 22% of 12th graders proficient or better in science. And those figures are far worse for kids in rural areas, for black kids, for kids on Indian reservations, and most of all, for poor kids. The simple fact is that according to our best assessments, we're not getting the vast majority of our students to even be proficient in basic skills. So amid the headlong rush to get back to what we were doing before, it seems reasonable to ask, are we rushing back to the right thing? Or is the right question really, how on earth can we do better by our kids? That question has obsessed my guest today for his entire career. Dr. Benjamin Houston is CEO of the Waterford Institute, a Utah-based not-for-profit that conducts early learning research and develops interactive education software aimed at kids in the pre-K through sixth grade range. He believes that our fundamental way of educating young kids needs an upgrade, but also, encouragingly, that it's doable, and he has the evidence to prove it. Benj, welcome to Great Ideas. Wonderful to be with you, Matt. It is a pleasure to have you and a disclaimer for all of our listeners. I've known Benj for more than 25 years. I've been a big fan of your work. I've provided my input on it from time to time, just based on my own experience in government. But what we're talking about today is not your nonprofit per se, but rather your insight about the basic American educational model, and frankly, the basic worldwide educational model, which bears a lot of similarities to what we do in the US. That's where I wanna start, with an insight about some of the fundamental limitations of what we're doing. And it comes from your father almost 50 years ago. So what was he doing at the time and what did he realize? Sure. So Dusty Houston, he was the head of an elite private girls school in New York City, the Spence School. And when he arrived there in the late 60s, it was still a bit of a finishing school, preparing, you know, the, the advantaged young ladies to, to enter into society. And he decided to upgrade that into becoming a very formidable preparatory school to, to provide them deeper and greater education and to prepare them to, to go to the Ivy Leagues. He was very successful at that. He had the glitterati of New York there. He had the Wall Street banker's daughters. He had the mayor's daughters. They argued over who had the largest helicopter at the time. And he felt very good about what he'd accomplished initially, that he had taken this 
kind of old school way of thinking about women's education and had propelled it forward. He had encouraged these ladies to go into engineering, into STEM, into computers and all of the newest technologies. But he could see Harlem from his window on the Upper East Side. And he started to ask himself if what he was doing was actually just deepening the inequities in our educational system and in our social system. And he began to wonder about how to make things not just equal in education, but equitable. So, so how do we give every student what he or she needs to be successful instead of just ensuring that everyone gets the same thing, whether they need it or not? And as he looked at this, he became rapidly dismayed by the organization of a typical classroom. So just to break it down in terms of time, which, which is really what you're trying to fight against, is you're trying to carve up uh, the day into instructional time for children. And if you have a teacher sitting amidst 20 or 30 children, it turns out, and in fact, Conant went in in the 70s with a stopwatch and looked at what every teacher was doing and found that only about a quarter of the day is instructional. So if you go into an elementary classroom and just sit there and watch what happens as the you know puppies are bounding around and the cats are moving around and you're hurting everything, it, it's only about a quarter of the time is direct instruction, is, is explicit instruction for young children. Furthermore, the most valuable time is one-on-one. -on -one. When a child has a specific question and the teacher is engaged at that level and is helping the child, that turned out to only be one to two minutes a day per child. Now, that, that may or may not be surprising to listeners, but if you think about it, just step back and follow the math. Schools are open about 180 days in a school year. So if you get one to two minutes of individualized time, that means across an entire school year, you get three to six hours of tutoring. The rest of it is group instruction or, or, or less. And so when, when, you, when you look at the changes that we try to make in education, they do not tend to be able to address this core problem. Now, now, the wealthy and elite have always known this, right? If your child is struggling, what do you do? You go get a tutor. Alexander the Great, right? Had the best tutor, right? Like, like we know these things. We know what idealized education looks like. And it turns out that scholars like Benjamin Bloom and others came and said, let's look at this. And they found that when you tutor, when, when you go one-on-one, -on -one, you take an average performance at the 50th percentile and you move it to the 98th percentile, right? So, so you are taking someone, you know, if you can take a class, the average in the class would go up to 98%. It's, it's incredible what we can do when we work one-on-one. -on -one. It's just unsustainable and unreachable in our current system. So that leads to this concept of the total amount of work that can be done in that kind of one-on-one, -on -one, that focused way with young kids, with young learners, between them and an instructor, and an insight about technology and the role that technology could play in increasing the amount of work. What's that all about? 
Sure. So work is a very loaded term at Waterford. Work is is whatever you're trying to accomplish. And the, the key insight that Waterford has or that Dusty had back in the early 70s was that technology allows you to do more. It exponentiates the amount of work that you have. And to give the, the, the example that Dusty was extremely fond of was in communication and the Pony Express. And for many years, we had the Pony Express that, that had about 400 horses, about 120 riders, and, and they would average about 10 miles an hour. They had about a, you know, 160 way stations and they, they would carry the mail, right? They would carry critical information. It was early information technology infrastructure, and it was based on people and horses. They averaged about 10 miles an hour, which, you know, without roads going across dangerous territory, like, like that was heroic. But I got to tell you, when they hooked up the telegraph, within two days, the entire Pony Express disappeared because light travels 67 million times faster than a horse. So if, you know, you say we got to deliver this message before your foot gets in the stirrup, the message has already been delivered. Don't bother. Now, what's interesting is if you had been a scientist back then and, and you brought in all of the MBAs and everyone else and you're like, OK, well, we've got to make this more efficient. You know, maybe we need more bridles or maybe maybe we need better saddles or we need better food for the horses. Like if you are working on a mature delivery system, it it does not improve when you keep putting money into it. You're just going to have a horsepower at the end of the day. You can give him titanium sold shoes or something. He's still not going to be that much faster. It's still one horsepower. So the problem that we have right now is that if you go back millennia, we are still focused around a single teacher trying to be maximized across 20 or 30 students or even more in other countries. And and what that does is that's maximizing the teacher, but we're at natural constraints. So if you look at typical reforms in education, it says, let's train the teacher better. Okay, well, one, some, one year I had the privilege of teaching high school math. And I had this incredible class with only seven kids in it. This, this is unbelievable, right? All of my problems were solved. I only had seven kids. Well, it turned out two of the kids were smarter than I was. They didn't even need me. I could have just thrown the textbook at them and they would have been fine. There were three kids for whom it was perfect. And, and we made great progress and you could see the light go on every single day. It was awesome. But there were two kids who showed up with a sense of fear in their eyes and who had those rounded shoulders of shame that tried to hide, right, in a classroom of seven, tried to hide on the back row and didn't want me to call on them because they couldn't do it. Now, I knew what they needed. I was teaching pre-calc and trig and all of that. They needed basic algebra. Fractions were st was still throwing them. I knew what they needed. There wasn't time to give it to them. I begged for them to come in after school or during lunch break or whatever but they literally needed hundreds, if not thousands of hours of repetition to really master the concepts and, and make them automatic so that they could start to grasp more difficult content. There was no time in the day to do it. 
And that's what technology allows you to do. So going back to your metaphor of the Pony Express, the riders are heroically performing the very best they can with the tools available to them. Sounds an awful lot like our teachers who, let's face it, are underpaid and are working in extremely difficult conditions and are often doing a heroic job under those circumstances. It's just that we are not giving them the most advanced tools that we could be giving them and standard reforms that we apply overall to our school systems amount to essentially giving them a little bit more of the bridles, the stirrups, and the best of 19th century technology. Let me ask you about where all of that has landed. I alluded to a few statistics that I just had at my fingertips earlier in the show. Are we being successful in educating, especially our youngest kids, under the standard model, even with all of the money and reform that we've tried to throw at it? Absolutely not. And and that's that's one of the biggest concerns that I have, Matt, is not only are teachers generally heroic, but during the past 18 months or so throughout COVID and the pandemic, they stepped up, right? They did what was asked. They did not ask to be front lines on a pandemic, but they did it. And they did it to do the best they could by children and by families. And they are her heroes in this in, in this whole saga. The problem is, as you said, we have not given them modern tools. They don't have 21st century tools to deal with 21st century problems. And, and part of what has shifted here, because the listeners might be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It's always been this way. No, it hasn't always been this way. If we go back to the 50s, and let's say, as you mentioned, about a third of our kids are, for instance, coming out of our school system, reading at grade level. Right. So in fourth grade, about a third, eighth grade, 12th grade, it doesn't get better across those years. Well, if you were in the 50s and you decided, quote unquote, school wasn't for you, you could drop out and you could go into agriculture and farming. You could go work on the line. You could have a solid, well-paying, blue collar, you know, middle class job. You would still have a car and a house and go on vacations. They might not be as extravagant or as fast or, you know, as exotic as others, but you could, you know, put food on the table for your family and, and live a great existence. Those jobs are going away and the requirements to live in a worldwide economy that's highly competitive and highly technical, they have gone up. So what schools are being asked to deliver is not one third of their students able to go into kind of white collar jobs and a third for blue collar and a third to go into you know, service or something. Rather, we're trying to get all kids there. The bar has been raised on our schools and businesses are saying, we cannot employ kids if they don't know the following things and have a much better sense of problem solving, of collaboration, of higher order thinking skills and stronger social um, emotional learning skills. These things were not being asked of, of the school system 50 years ago. So the requirements have gone up. Our approach has not meaningfully changed. That's the problem. Now, I can just hear listeners saying to themselves, okay, come on. I know where you're going with all this. You want us to invest in a lot more technology in the classrooms and at home. But wait a minute. 
We just did remote learning. It was terrible. And I think there's a danger of people reaching that conclusion and saying, look, this triage thing that we just did is the same thing as I think what you're talking about, which is a smart, interactive set of tools that are carefully designed to work with teachers and with parents and that are based on child psychology and science and education research. It's like aliens land and demand, we need to hear a music concert now or the earth gets it. And so my five-year-old starts banging on a keyboard and as they're taking off into their ships, I'm like, well, hold on, let me play you the Beatles before you make a decision. So what is the difference between a well-designed program that leverages technology and the sort of best effort, but often shambolic situation that we saw in the last year and a half? Yeah, great question. I mean, it was clearly a fire drill. No one predicted the pandemic. It hit, we were not prepared for it. Schools are, are categorically slow in, in coming to new technologies and in, in, in adopting them. And there are good reasons for that. Teachers that have been teaching for a long time that have a certain approach that they feel has been effective in the past, they are very reluctant to, to give up those approaches for something that may or may not be better. They don't want to have their children be guinea pigs, right? They, they want to use what's tried and tested and technology it, with its rapid evolution continues to shift and change and evolve. And that means oftentimes we don't even have the data on, on the latest and greatest by the time that it self obsoletes and moves on to the next thing. So, so the rate of technology continues to shift. What I, what I think is important about this conversation first and foremost is this is not to replace what we know works. This is not to re replace teachers, right? Technology is best utilized as a tool to help take the burden off of our teachers who already, as you mentioned, are overworked and underpaid. And, and you know, that will just keep going up. As, as a good friend of mine said, um, you know, look at society's problems today. In 10 years, we'll be asking schools to take them on as well, right? So <laughs> now that the pandemic's hit, what is the number one thing people are talking about in education? Mental health, right? So what's being asked? Why don't schools have more mental health counselors? Why aren't schools doing a better job taking care of mental health? We've never asked that of our schools in the past. That's a whole new front that's being opened through the pandemic. The question now that lies in front of us is how do we thoughtfully take the best of technology and weave it in to schools and into homes to ensure that our children are getting what they need in order to be successful in a technology-rich environment going forward. So, Dr. Houston, what is your great idea for improving our entire system of education, particularly for our youngest students in America? Well, I think that, you know, as you mentioned, Matt, one, one of the problems that we have with the pandemic is we just had this fire drill where we tried to throw some technology at it and it didn't work. That was not surprising. We knew that this was going to be a heavy lift because schools have not been using technology well for decades. What lies in front of us right now is how are we going to take what is rapidly improving 
And I'll get to that in, in just how fast that's improving in a minute. But how do we get that source, that wellspring of, of work energy and harness it in order to be able to do more in schools? And, and this, this is what changes everything. Technology is that X factor that genuinely completely shifts the game. And let, let me just talk very briefly about what I mean by that. Technology is not static, meaning it gets better all the time. Believe it or not, cell phones used to be things that we actually made phone calls on. That is, you know, go back a few generations of cell phones, right? We, we spoke on them, then we started texting on them, then we took some really grainy pictures on them. They, they now do video, they now speak to you in multiple languages. What a cell phone does or a smartphone does is, is category breaking. Imagine if we expected that of people, right? Imagine if we suddenly expected people to be able to take videos or speak in multiple languages or do all those things. These things are quietly happening. And surprisingly, the cost of them, unless it's Apple, is, is going down every generation, right? So technology is not just getting stronger, it's getting cheaper every time. And it's both of those together that changes everything. So the amount of horsepower or work or energy, leverage, whatever you want to call it, the power that you have with technology keeps going up and it will keep going up. In fact, scientists tell us it, we're not living in some post-technology world where technology is now done. It's actually accelerating. The rate of change is going faster every year. And it looks like it will continue to do that for many, many years into the future. Meaning, if you think that everything has changed already because of technology, it hasn't even started yet. So buckle up. Everything is going to continue to change. Now, that doesn't mean it's all good or good for kids. We can't just say, oh, I've got a problem. Throw a computer at it. That, that, is, not, that is not what I'm advocating. Which is pretty and, much what we saw during the pandemic, which was this idea of, okay, we can solve this problem by putting the whole class on a Zoom call. Maybe we can solve this problem by everyone watch this video. So I actually wanna, I wanna go there because I hear what you're saying, which is that the great idea here is let's not view technology and some of the barriers that our kids have to accessing technology, working with technology, frankly, barriers that some of our teachers have as well. Let's not view that as the problem. Let's view that as the solution. Let's view that as we have the most monumental, innovative experiment going on in technology in the history of humanity right now in America in the 21st century. Let's apply it thoughtfully to how we educate our kids to break ourselves out of the same educational model that we've had essentially for thousands of years. It's a compelling idea at a high level. I can see two pushback arguments, two devil's advocate arguments. One is around outcomes and one is around access. So let's talk outcomes first. Now, there's been a lot of discussion during the pandemic about whether you can achieve good educational outcomes through technology-enabled remote means. I will say that 
the research that I've seen, Susanna Loeb, who is a professor of education and public affairs at Brown University, widely cited, says that there's actually some evidence that in some circumstances, in-person learning is better than online learning, but a meta-analysis of all available research from the U.S. Department of Education found that on average, students in online learning performed a little bit better than those even in face-to-face -face instruction. What do the data tell us? And I'm gonna go ahead and refer you here to your own work at Waterford, but I think that you, the same thing could be said about any high quality, well-designed online learning platform. What have you found in terms of outcomes? Great question. So one of the things that we did back in 2013, we were given a grant by the federal government, the Investing in Innovation Grant, and they wanted to know about the most rural families. So, so rurality is a real problem in education. Acknowledging that the teacher is the single most important thing in a child's experience in education in a classroom, right? It is all about the teacher. Well, you have very few teachers living in the rurals, right? And so you might have someone driving the bus, coaching football, teaching physics, right? Like, like all of these things, right? Because you have a very limited population to pull from, and it's very, very difficult to get the children into the classroom for that performance. And so th there are, are real problems in rurality. And the federal government was ha had a priority around trying to figure out what works. So we went in to the homes of young children. This would be the year before they begin kindergarten. And we wanted to work on early literacy. And so we have found that children that come to school ready to learn tend to continue to be successful in schools, while those who kind of trip in that transition into school or start late, they are constantly swimming upstream, literally for the rest of their careers. And so we see great leverage in trying to get every child to the starting line. So how do you do that with rural? Well, you go into the home. So we brought in computer and internet to the homes of thousand families in, in the 18 most rural school districts in Utah. Now to give you just a sense, because I, I know some people think, you know, oh, well, what's the big deal? I have one district in Utah that is the size of Rhode Island and it has 14 four-year-olds. I have another one that is larger than the state of Massachusetts and it has 226 four-year-olds in over 8,000 square miles. You simply cannot bring all those kids together into classrooms. It's, it's not gonna work. So you have to go to them. So we brought computer, we brought internet. Sometimes that was satellite internet. Sometimes we were erecting solar power to get electricity to, to kids on reservations. I mean, we, we went wherever the kids were. What we found was that the children arrived at school ready to read. Right. So we advanced them by about a third to a half of a year's worth of learning on top of their normal growth. Right. So we accelerated learning. We did that through the use of a computer. It adapted to each child's needs every day. Children use it for about 15 minutes a day and it it responded directly to them. It was like having a tutor for 15 minutes a day in the home. That was it. You're talking about an interactive intelligent 
program that's able to assess where the kid is at and take them through various learning exercises, fun, you know, designed and age appropriate to advance their, their reading, their literacy, their letter recognition, et cetera. That's right. That's right. And it was, and whether it's through songs, whether it's through games, whether it's through explicit instruction and practice, all of those are woven in and the children enjoy it. In fact, on, on average, they use it about 50% more than we asked. So, so this once again is happening in very remote locations that don't have other options. We're not trying to come in and, and shut down other options. We're simply saying, what about the children who have nothing? How can we be a program of last resort? And does it have an impact? And, Do you and see it similar outcomes in other settings? What about an urban setting? What about a uh, majority minority setting ethnically are do you see that kind of that that kind of boost in reading outcomes and math outcomes across all kinds of different circumstances absolutely we do and and we we did it for this during the pandemic one of the things that happened was a number of our national partners of our philanthropic partners since we're a nonprofit reached out to us when covid first hit and said over 90% of head starts are closed these children are not going to show up ready for school. What can you do? And in a matter of weeks, we spun up this program for over 13,000 families across nine different states, shipped them computers, got them internet, did coaching and training for the parents. We did it in multiple languages, and we did it on the Navajo Nation. And of all the children in the program, the ones that grew the most were those on the Navajo Nation which are some of the most disadvantaged children in America. So we were able to do that in, in the teeth of the pandemic. So what, as you said, we're not miraculous here, right? We're not the only ones in the world that know how to use technology to help kids. There are lots of other very bright, you know, wonderful programs out there, but I can only speak to our data. Our data are showing that on average, kids coming out of our program are reading as if they're already midway or towards the end of kindergarten in their abilities. And, and this is for those disadvantaged populations by and large. Well, that um, really does get to sort of the, I, I previewed that I was going to hit you with two devil's advocate arguments. One was outcomes. And it does sound like you have compelling data. And by the way, I echo what you're saying here that we're not necessarily pointing just toward what Waterford itself does, although I do think it's very important that you guys are very intentional and careful in, in tracking your data, in basing everything you do on research, and being very honest about what your outcomes are. I think that you can't just throw any old program at this. We saw that. It was called remote learning during the but what about the access question? Now, you alluded to that a little bit. You were able to reach people who are in remote locations, highly rural locations, Indian reservations. How about that disparity of access? Because one of the issues that came up in the last episode we did about remote learning is broadband access, computer ownership, the fact that smartphone or iPad tablet ownership does not substitute in all ways for having a computer. What about that issue of access? Well, absolutely. And, and across the pandemic, I, I spoke about this as infrastructure of equity, right? So if, if the only way that you're going to be able to reach some of these families is through computer and internet, 
then then that's that's table stakes right like like you can't even get in the game if you don't have that and that needs to simply be birthright <laughs> i don't know how else to say it it needs to be universally available and it is not today it's not for lots of of technical reasons for political reasons for geographical reasons i mean it is a complex thing but i think what we're talking about today is not just today right the point here is that if you look at a cell phone and say, well, it doesn't do this, and for three or four years keep thinking cell phones don't do that, you need to be very careful because what a cell phone is, is evolving in real time. And just because it didn't yesterday doesn't mean it won't tomorrow. What we need to do is we need to start having people demand things that help them do their work and you actually know that we've gotten there, number one, when the test scores start showing that we're there, but number two, when we stop talking about technology. So if you want to go to the store to get milk, you say, I'm going to the store to get milk. You don't say, I'm going to go downstairs, get in my car, open the garage, and then manipulate a car over to the, no, no, like it's, it's so transparent because it meets your needs that you don't even talk about the technology. We should not be saying, I want to educate children, therefore I need a computer. What we should be saying is we need stronger readers. We need deeper thinkers. We need more compassionate children. That's what we need. That's going to come as we remove some of the overburden of work that's been placed on a traditional mature schooling system. And that system needs to evolve. To give you a simple sense of that, I'm a parent. Usually dads are supposed to know something, right? So my kids will look at me and say, what does this mean? I have realized I'm outdated. I need to go pull up Wikipedia or something, right? You know, it used to be a dictionary somewhere. Now it's Wikipedia. I don't have perfect recall or memory but Wikipedia is pretty close, not 100%, we can all, you know, but, but in general, it's, it is better for me to teach my children that when they have a question that is factual in nature, they, need, they just need information. Wikipedia is a great place to start. That's a life hack. That was not available when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it was all about the encyclopedia. And, and you went and tried to find an encyclopedia at a local library. You see, That's you should be trying the approach. Yeah, you're, you're, you're doing the wrong approach. You should do what I do as a father, just make stuff up. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's called a dad hack. Let, you know, I think what you're raising is a really important point. And, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but it, it really strikes me with Dr. Khalila Harris, who we had on the last episode talking to you. By the way, all of you people have doctorates. And so I'm feeling very left out that, when we think about barriers and we think about technology and broadband and infrastructure as barriers, we're really, we're trapping ourselves in a use of language that doesn't convey the right idea. The right idea here is we have the most powerful technological tools ever developed, and we're only allowing them in the hands of the rich, white, and privileged essentially, when it comes to education. And so the question should be, why are the teachers, you know, down the street from where I grew up in Harlem, 
in New York City or on the Indian Reservation as part of the Navajo Nation? Why are the teachers there denied the very best tools that we could give them? And why haven't we figured out as a part, as a core part, as we look to spend tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars on infrastructure, especially broadband and computers in this country, why aren't we putting that issue front and center? That's me on a soapbox. I'm going to climb down now because I have another question. It's sort of a bonus piece of devil's advocacy for you. But I'm going to go there because you alluded to it a moment ago yourself. Teachers are a critical part of this equation here. And the, the best tool in your toolkit is the one that you will actually use. So what experience have you had with teachers, many of whom have now had a really unpleasant experience using computers, using broadband infrastructure, using technology during the pandemic. What is their experience using your tool and others like it? Do they like it? Do they use it? And does it work in their hands? Is this something they want to use? It's a great question. So, and the, the answer, Matt, is unfortunately, we have millions of teachers doing things in very different ways. So there's a spectrum here. I, I, I think we just need to acknowledge first and foremost, there is a tremendous spectrum. What I can say is that teachers look to the children. So when a teacher gets excited is when she sees something working for a child. And I think what has surprised many teachers is that although the pandemic was disruptive and very difficult and not ideal for most children, there are some for whom it has been exactly what they needed. So there are parents and teachers kind of in, in shocked voices saying, wait a minute, this is actually a modality that really works for some of our children. And now what, right? So, so if we really are gonna do right by children and we've now identified something that's really good for some children in its current form, even though it was kind of throw it against the wall and see what sticks, for some children, it's turned out to be very, very good. And, and so we are starting to see the glimmerings of a system that says, wow, we can't just be one size fits all anymore. So even as schools are saying, let's open back up, let's get back to quote unquote, what works, which you and I have discussed a little bit, not sure it was really working the way we wanted it to before. So I'm not sure we should hurry back that direction. But but even so, you know, wait a minute, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We have now identified a useful tool. The question is how do we identify which children it's going to work the best for and keep, keep that as an option moving forward. That, that gives me hope that the system is starting to be open to and to contemplate change, which it's going to need to do. And to be clear, what you design and what most well-designed learning tools are built around is a mode of use that is a complement to what the teacher is doing in the classroom. Absolutely. It's something that is integrated as part of classroom use, as part of home use, homework use. And it's a way for the teacher perhaps to interface with parents in a more effective way as well. So you know, I think one of the things that that we haven't talked really about yet 
is parents. And parents have always been at the heart of education. And that, you know, I'm going to read you just very a very brief quote from, from the language that formed our Federal Department of Education back on October 17, 1979. Here's the third bullet from, from kind of the setting it all out. And it says, quote, parents have the primary responsibility for the education of their children and states, localities, and private institutions have the primary responsibility for supporting that parental role, close quote. So, you know, when people say, wait a minute, this whole idea of choice in education, well, it's baked into the system. It's always been there. There is not a state in the union that requires parents to send their children to public school. They can go private, they can do homeschool, they can do charter now. I mean, there are options. And that has always been the case because the ultimate responsibility for the education of children is with the parents. And I think one of the things the pandemic has helped us rediscover is the role and the importance of the role of parents in education. Makes total sense to me. Let me close on, on this question. What will success look like in your mind? Success to me, once again, is how do we move from equality, right? Which was just getting everyone the same thing. Like everyone had the right to go to a school, to be with, with a great teacher in a classroom and, and get the same thing. How do we move from that, which was only working, was only truly working for about a third of our kids so that they would thrive, right? Not just survive. How do we get our kids thriving? About a third of our kids in the current system and this has not changed for about 40 years of NAEP testing, National Assessment of Educational Progress, 40 years, it has been essentially flat. So if that hasn't meaningfully changed, if we haven't gone from a third to two thirds to 80% or whatever, it's only working for a third, how do we now make it work for the other two thirds? And I think the only way we're gonna be able to do that is by learning to harness technology. And, and that's, that is going to be an evolving iterative you know path it's it's not going to be tomorrow we figured it out and even the things that we have today i've been working for 25 years on what we do at waterford i i would tell you that there are many many ways we can improve it but it takes it takes time and research and an investment to do that but as we do that we are going to shrink the the gap between equality and an equity where we finally get to the point where every child gets what he or she needs to be successful first in school and then in life. Dr. Benjamin Houston is the CEO of the Waterford Institute. Thank you so much for sharing your great idea. 